Well, good morning, River City. Uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. Uh, excited as well to uh, for the budgeting and finances seminar tomorrow night. I uh, just want to personally invite you to that. Uh, we're just going to be talking about like how God's word and the good news of the gospel uh, shapes and informs the way we think about and relate to money, how we uh, like how we relate to it, how we give it, how we spend it, how we save it. Like how does the gospel and how does God's word shape the way that we view and relate to it? And so um, uh, it's always been like a really encouraging time, a really helpful time for people. And so as we start a new year, as you're thinking about, man, maybe I need to make a new budget. Maybe I need to start thinking about how, uh, what role God plays in the way I look at or view my money. Charlie, I want to encourage you to come check it out. Uh, it'd be a great low key way to just take some next steps with some of those kinds of things. So excited as well to continue our series in the gospel of John together. But if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, uh, it's helpful to understand that John is kind of like a documentary that tells the story of Jesus' life and ministry. But it's, uh, it's really unique when you compare it with the other three Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's is really unique. What we see throughout our series is that, is that the reason for all of those differences has to do with the fact that uh, the audience that John has in mind, you see, a big portion of John's audience, uh, the p- people that he has in mind that he's writing to, would have been uh, second generation Christians, people who had kind of grown up uh, reading the other gospel writers' accounts about Jesus' life and ministry, people who had grown up whose parents or grandparents would have been showing them and telling them about Jesus and what it means to have faith in him. And and so they've, they've had access to all that stuff, but the reality is, is that their own lives weren't being transformed by the person and the work of Jesus. They were kind of just kind of riding the spiritual coattails of their parents. And, and the sobering reality that John understands is that proximity to Jesus is not the same thing as relationship with him. See, head-level knowledge about Jesus is not the same thing as heart-level relationship with him. And so what John's trying to do throughout the gospel is kind of wake people up from this insufficient head-level familiarity with Jesus that's not changing their lives in any real meaningful way. And he wants to show them this picture of Jesus that is awe-inspiring and captivating and stunning and eternity-altering because what he wants is for them to have a heart-level faith in him, the kind of faith that's actually changing their lives. And we've seen throughout the first half of John's gospel that one of the primary ways John tries to do that is by recounting a number of the miracles that Jesus did. But John really deliberately, he doesn't call them miracles, he always refers to them as signs. Because in John's gospel, Jesus' miracles, they're not just displays of power, they're meant like billboards on a highway to point you to something beyond themselves, something that Jesus is trying to show us about who he is and what he came to do. And and this morning, as we take a look at John chapter 11, we're going to... We're going to see how John, the first half of John's gospel actually climaxes with the greatest miracle, the greatest sign yet that Jesus performed. He's going to, we're going to see Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. As we study this incredible sign and Jesus' claim in it to be the resurrection and the life, what John is trying to get us to see, the reason he includes this story, what he's trying to help us to see, is that faith in Jesus isn't just the only way to overcome death in the end, that faith in him is actually the only way you truly live now. In other words, Jesus, his life-giving, resurrecting power, it's not just meant to give you some kind of vague hope for the future. It's meant to transform your life today and every day. And that was not happening for the large part of the audience that John was writing to. 
And he wants them to see the eternity-altering reality of who Jesus says he is, who he proves himself to be. So not just so they'd have a hope at the end, but so they'd have life now. So I can't wait to show that to you. It's one of my, honestly one of my favorite passages in all of John. Can't wait to show it to you this morning. So let's pray and we'll, uh, we'll dive into the passage together. Jesus, thanks so much for you and for your word. God, we're so grateful to get to open it up again this morning. And God, as we take a look at the, this sign in, in John's gospel, as we take a look at you raising Lazarus from the dead, God, I pray that you might help us by your spirit, not just to gain more informational knowledge about you, but that you might captivate our hearts, Jesus, with the reality of who you are and what you've come to do. Help us to see you and to put our faith in you in a way that doesn't just give us hope at the end, but in a way that empowers life now today. And so God, I I don't have any power to make that happen, uh, but you do. And so as we open your word, might your spirit speak to us and cause those realities to become good news to our hearts that change us. And so we depend on you just like we do every week. Look forward to seeing how you'll work in us this morning, God. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be in John chapter 11, a long chapter this week. Buckle up with me. Uh, Man, it's such a good one. Can't wait to show it to you. Begins this way. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village that Mary and her sister Martha. Mary, this is the Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. We're going to see that story in just a couple of weeks here. And so the sisters, they sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime won't stumble, for they'll see by the world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep, and so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you might believe. But let us go to him. And Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who's come into the world. 
And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still, <coughs> still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and who had seen what Jesus did believed in him. Some of them went to the Pharisees and they told them what Jesus had done. And so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Man, there's so much good stuff here. But it all begins with thinking about the idea of death. I don't know about you, there's a lot of parents with young kids, and I'm sure many of you might remember this, but at the, there's this scene at the end of the newest Frozen movie where Olaf, who is by far the best character in all the movies, right? Uh, he kind of like sums up the story of the whole movie. He like sums up the plot in this like hilariously abbreviated way where you like one man acts the whole movie out in 10 seconds. And my kids thought it was just the most hilarious thing that they had ever seen at the time. And so they would run around the house quoting this thing, you know, and they're saying, Elsa's dead and Anna's dead and everyone's crying and something about water and so nobody died. I don't really understand what happens at the end, but they just thought it was the funniest thing, right? But the, the reality is that despite how funny that scene is and how much my kids love quoting it, none of us actually like talking about death. No, none of us want to do that. And when we do, we always try to soften it. We try to brush it off with humor. We say stuff like someone passed on or they went to a better place, right? Or people are pushing up daisies, right? And sometimes we just don't say anything at all. And you just kind of, there's a look and you kind of just know. The question is, why do we do that? Why do we, why do we always try to soften death? I think sometimes it's just because like we're trying to be kind to somebody who's just lost a loved one, right? We're not trying to just like shove that in their face. But I think more often than not, it's because we're trying to avoid it. Right? We want to avoid the discomfort of death. We want to avoid the pain of it. We want to avoid the inevitability of it. We do everything we can to avoid death, right? We take vitamins, we use anti-aging creams, right? You go to the doctor, right? Some people are even willing to eat kale and go running, right? Like people are committed, right, to not dying, right? We're, we're willing to do just about anything, right? 
And we do all that because deep down what we know is that death is not a friend. It's an enemy. It's an enemy that no amount of modern technology or medicine can ultimately overcome. Right? You can put it off for a while and you can avoid thinking about it for a while and you can delay the warning signs of it for a while, but you cannot avoid it altogether. You can't escape it. Apart from Jesus. See, so far in John's gospel, we've seen Jesus identifying himself as the bread of life, the water of life, the light of life. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus. He talks about himself as the resurrection and the life. You see, and in so doing, what Jesus is claiming is that in faith in him, it not only secures this promise of like resurrection on the last day, Faith in him is the thing that empowers that resurrection reality to bear fruit in your life today. Like now, every day. See, the passage, it begins with Jesus and he gets word from his friends, Mary and Martha, that their brother Lazarus is, has, is really sick. And then Jesus' response in verses 5 and 6 is surprising to say the least, right? Verse 5, Jesus says that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Verse 6 goes on, so he... So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days, right? If you're paying attention, that should cause you to do a double take, right? Jesus loved them, so he stayed put for two more days. Not, it doesn't say but. It doesn't say, oh, he couldn't get there. Like he was, he was really busy for two more days. It says Jesus loved them, so he stayed two more days. By the time Jesus gets to Bethany, Lazarus is dead, right? Not like Princess Bride, mostly dead, like four days, like there's a smell kind of dead. And so the question that you got to ask when you read those verses is, like, what is going on here? Right? How could it possibly be loving of Jesus to let his friend die and to let his sisters walk through the pain of that? Everybody in the passage, they have the exact same question, right? Verse 21, Martha says to Jesus, if you'd been here, then my brother wouldn't have died. His sister Mary in verse 32, she has the exact same question, right? Verse 37, the crowds, they're mumbling amongst themselves. If he could heal the blind man, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Why, why didn't he do that? And the truth is that, yes, Jesus absolutely could have kept Lazarus from dying. Remember back in chapter 4, he didn't even need to be in Bethany for that to happen, right? The, the, the ruler, the official comes to Jesus, right? Jesus heals his son with a word from a distance. He absolutely could have healed him. So again, why does he wait? Why does he let Lazarus die? How is that loving? In verse 14 through 15, Jesus tells the disciples this. He says, for your sake... I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Similarly, verse 40, 41, right before he raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is praying out loud to the Father, and he says, he says that he's doing that. He says, Father, I pray this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you sent me. You see, everything we see Jesus doing in this passage the reason why he waits two days and lets his friend die, and the reason why he comes to raise him in the first place is so that people might see him for who he really is and respond in faith. You see, Jesus absolutely could have healed Lazarus, but the sisters and the crowd and Lazarus himself, what he needed to see and believe is not just that Jesus had the power to prevent death and to, and to keep someone alive, but we need to see and believe is that Jesus has the power to raise the dead in the first place. What we need to see and believe is that he is God himself. 
See, Jesus isn't merely after our temporary well-being. Jesus came, we see in John 10, so we might have life. Real life. True life. Not life that isn't just like existing. But life that has meaning and purpose. And life that doesn't end. And that only comes by seeing him as God and responding in faith to him that way. It's so important that you see this. You see, how is that loving of Jesus, right? How is it loving of him to let his friend die and to let his sisters walk through that? It can feel like he's just like being mean. See, but the reality is that Jesus loves us not by keeping us from pain and suffering and trial. See, the passage helps us to see the way Jesus loves you is by showing himself to you. Because if you don't see him for who he is, you might physically exist, but you will definitely not really live. See, the reality is that God knows that sometimes the only way you can see him rightly is through the lens of pain and suffering and trial. He asked Jeff Cuter how often, uh, he, he, my friend he, Jeff, he often talks about how you know, going through cancer was this really difficult thing, but how he wouldn't trade it because it fundamentally changed the way he saw and related to God. It transformed his view of who God was and, and what he was like in a way nothing else could. And if you asked Jeff if he would trade that experience, if he could like avoid going through that, I can guarantee you Jeff would say no. Not because it was like super fun, right? Like cancer's not fun, Right? Chemo is not fun. Walking through those things is hard. But Jeff, the reason why Jeff would never trade that is because he got a view of God. He sees him more fully and more clearly. And the view of God that he has now isn't worth trading for anything. John Piper, he sums it up this way. He says, don't measure God's love for you by how much much health and wealth and comfort he brings into your life or how much pain he spares you from. Instead, measure God's love for you by how much of himself he shows you, how much of himself he gives you to know and enjoy. Here's the reality. I promise that what you'll find is that the view God wants to give you of himself in the midst of really hard things is a view at the end you would not trade when you see it. You see, in the midst of walking through difficult things, the invitations that we might ask God, what is it that you are trying to show me about yourself? Help me to see what it is you are bringing about, the good you are bringing about in me that I might see about you that I cannot see another way. You see, what Jesus is trying to reveal about himself to these sisters by letting their brother die and then by raising him from the dead, it's all summed up in this conversation he has with Martha in verses 21 through 26. Right? Martha comes to Jesus, she's heartbroken, and yet she's hopeful. In verse 21 she says, Lord, Lord, if you'd been here, then my brother would not have died, but I know that even now that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus responds by telling her that, yeah, her brother will rise again. And Martha is a good Jew, right? She's, she says she knows that on the last day, right, the day when God comes to usher in his kingdom, that he's going to be resurrected with everyone else. And verse 25, Jesus basically says, Martha, you don't get it yet. Martha, you don't see. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me. They'll live even if they die. And whoever lives by believing in me, they won't ever die. Says, Martha, do you get it? 
What he's telling Martha is, Martha, you believe that there's this day coming, this great and glorious day of resurrection coming at the end of the age when God's going to raise all believers from the grave, and you are right to believe that. But there is a greater reality that you need to see, Martha. Martha, I'm the resurrection itself. Not only do I have power over death, I am life. I made it. I give it. I'm the very source of it. And here's the truth, Martha. Your brother is dead. He needs new life altogether. But you need new life just as much as he does. See, the kind of life that Martha needed is the kind of life that enables you to truly live in the midst of the face of death. And you only get that when you have faith in Jesus See, what Jesus is trying to help her see in the midst of those verses, right, is that there's this twofold reality that comes when we come to see and to believe that he's the resurrection and the life. And the first, right, is that there's this promise of resurrection on the last day, right? Verse 25, the one who believes in me will live even if they die, right? There's this incredibly powerful hymn that speaks to that reality. I remember my mom had it played at my grandparents' funeral and it's a song called, It Is Not Death to Die. And I love, I love the verses of this song. They, the verse one begins this way. It says, it is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before the throne, delivered from your fears. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you evermore. Jesus conquered the grave. Your precious blood has power to save. And those who trust in you will in your mercy find it is not death to die. See, that song, it echoes the words that Jesus speaks to his friend Martha. He tells her, those who die, who believe in me, they'll rise again. He's telling her that faith in him, it utterly changes your future. It completely alters the impact of death. All who believe in him won't die. They won't die the eternal kind of death. And even though they die, Jesus says they'll really live. Romans chapter 6, Apostle Paul sums it up this way. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. See, but Jesus, right, faith in him is the resurrection and the life. It doesn't just secure for you a promise of resurrection in the future, in a future life. John includes this whole story so that we might see that faith in Jesus, it's the thing that empowers you to actually truly live now. Uh, empowers the kind of hope that brings that resurrection reality into your everyday life. Right in verse 25, Jesus says, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. He goes on in 26, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. See, the only way you escape death in the end is through faith in Jesus, but the only way you truly live now is also through faith in him. See, inescapability of death, it often causes us to live lives full of fear and worry and anxiety. Jesus says, when you know the end of the story, when you know who's the one, who, the author of all of it, then it changes how you live now. Remember when my kids were little, right? 
Whenever we'd watch a movie, right, there's just like mild peril, which as a parent you come to learn is like any form of tension in a story whatsoever, right? And your kids, right, Every, anytime anything dangerous remotely happens in a movie, they're like burying their face in a pillow, right, or like trying to cover them. Like they can't deal with it, right? They're watching a movie, they're full of anxiety and fear, right? As a parent, you're sitting next to them, encouraging them like, hey, you, you, don't, you don't have to be afraid. You know, because the reality is that you know what's coming, and you know that, you know the end of the story. You know that death doesn't win in the story. And I remember after my kids would see a movie for the first time, it transformed how they watched it every time after that, right? And all those moments of tension in the story where they, where they once would just like run to the corner of the couch and shove their head under a pillow or cover up with a blanket. I remember they would just look at me and be like, Dad, don't worry. It's going to be okay, you know? Because they know the end of the story. Right? They're not afraid anymore. They're not full of fear and anxiety. They're confident because they know how it ends. So the same is true for our real lives today. See, the reason you and I can be full of joy, the reason we can have confidence in the midst of all kinds of difficult situations, right, is not because it's like, oh, I just believe Jesus is going to work it out and everything's going to be totally fine in the end. Jesus tells his disciples, right, in this life you will have struggles. Take heart, I've already overcome all of it. See, the the reason you can live a life that's not characterized by fear and anxiety, it's not because you get to escape every hard thing, but because the king has already defeated it himself. That's why you can have hope. Revelation chapter 1, the risen, ruling, reigning King Jesus He appears to John, the writer of this gospel. John's been exiled on the island of Patmos, just waiting his death. And Jesus comes to him in all of his glorious might and splendor. And he tells him at the beginning of one, chapter one of Revelation, he says, I am the living one. Behold, I was dead. Now look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys to death in Hades. See, when you see Jesus like that, when you see him as the resurrection and the life, what happens is it not only transforms your last day, it transforms your every day. You get hope and life that comes from having allegiance to a king that not only is ruling and reigning over everything, including death, but one who loves you and is with you in it. You see, the famous missionary Jim Elliott, he once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what it looks like to have a resurrection reality break into your everyday. You see, the kind of life Jesus came to give is not just the kind of life that physical death can't end. It's the kind of life that empowers you to really live now. And so Jesus doesn't heal their brother. He lets him die so that he can reveal to them and and to us in doing so that he's the only one who can give us the life we really need. But it's important that you see this. See, John 11 is not just a passage about the story of Lazarus, the story of death back to life. See, John 11 is also a story of Jesus' life that led him to death. 
You see, the passage ends with some people responding and saving faith to Jesus' revelation of himself, and others, yet instead of responding in faith, they go and inform on him to the religious leaders, right? And, and it's the final straw for them. The passage ends, right? And they're, they're plotting to kill Jesus openly. And the whole rest of John's gospel is this, this road that leads Jesus to the cross. And Jesus isn't dumb, right? The whole passage begins, right? The reason he's not in Judea at the beginning of the passage is because people tried to stone him and kill him there. Right? He, he knows exactly what these religious leaders think about him. And he knows how they're going to respond. And that's what makes this miracle and this claim all the more striking because the reality is that when Jesus chooses to return to Judea and when he chooses to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is also choosing to die himself. It's, the, it's that point where he is crossing the point of no return. He's committing to trading places with Lazarus. You see, and that's at the very heart of what the good news of the gospel is really all about. See, Jesus, it's not just that Jesus comes to give us life. It's that Jesus comes to trade his own for ours. Lazarus was saved. Martha was saved. I am saved. You can be saved. Because Jesus died in our place. Lazarus and us were able to live because Jesus dies. The arrows of death that are meant for us, Jesus stands in the gap and he receives them on our behalf so that you and I can not only escape death in the end, so that you and I might actually have the power and the hope that actually makes us live, enables us to live now. See, it's Jesus' substitutionary death for us that we're remembering every week when we take communion together. Reminding ourselves about Jesus' body and blood that were broken and shed for us so that in, through faith in him, we might have the kind of life that death cannot defeat. And so communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's a chance for you to remember him. And to remind yourself that he is the resurrection and the life. And so the reality of his resurrection power might get brought in to your everyday. And so if you put your trust in Jesus, if you have believed that he is the resurrection and the life, or you do for the first time this morning, then I want to encourage you during our time of worship, go back and take communion. There's a table in the back on the left and the right. You can dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of his body and blood broken and shed for you. But if you're here this morning, you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And if trusting in him as the resurrection and life is really something you're ready for, I just want you to know how welcome you are here, how glad I am that you might join us, but I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God doesn't want you to try to put your trust in some religious ritual to kind of get you right with him. He wants you to trust him. He's the resurrection and the life. And the only way you have life now and forever is through faith in him. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is and our church is and we'd love to help you get to know him. And so as we sing and as we worship and as you remember the gospel together in song this morning, I just want to encourage you, wherever you're at, talk with God. Some of you are here this morning, and you need to see and believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life for the first time. 
Maybe you've grown up going to church. Maybe you've grown up doing all the things and you have a lot of proximity to Jesus. But John writes this story so that you might have faith in him. Not a head level knowledge about him, a heart level transforming hope in him. John uses the word believe almost a hundred times in his gospel, eight times alone in our 40-something verses this morning. That's the whole reason. He says at the end of the book, he writes the whole book. For chapter 20, verse 31, he says, these things are written so that you might believe. And the invitation for you this morning is that you might not just try to gain some more informational knowledge about Jesus, but that you might ask him to help you have a transformational relationship with him. That you might trust him to be your resurrection and life. And so some of you are here and you need to do that for the first time this morning. Others of you are here though and you've come to know and believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The problem is you still find yourself living with this kind of crippling anxiety and worry and fear. And the invitation for you this morning is that you might ask Jesus to make the reality of his resurrection power, like have him bring that into your life this morning. It's so easy for us to forget that. Right? Jesus says, those who live by believing in me. See, in John, believe is always an active word. It's never like a factual thing. It's always an active verb. So the way you have life now is by believing and keep on believing in It's by every day putting your hope in him, asking the reality of his identity, his resurrecting power to break into your world and to keep renewing and restoring you. You have to live by believing in him. It's not just a, you live at the end when you believe in him. It's like you have to believe in him now. That's how you live now. And so you need that reminder. You need to ask Jesus to keep doing that for you this morning. Others of you, though, you're here and you're in the middle of some really hard things. Like Lazarus's sisters, maybe there's a whole lot of heartbreak and sorrow, even tragedy in your own world right now. And the invitation as we see God's word is that you might, it's just so easy for you in the midst of that season to believe that, that God is either punishing you or that he just doesn't love you. And this passage is such this beautiful reminder for us this morning. Right, that, that God's love isn't revealed to you by how well your life is going, by how little pain you have or how much wealth he gives you. His love for you is rooted in his revelation of himself to you. Let that settle your heart. Let it give you hope and life. And let, it, let the reality that Jesus weeps with these sisters, let that give you life in the midst of the hard things. See, God is not, he's not just like standing at a distance telling you to suck it up because like good things are at the end of really hard things. And if you just know that, you're like, you just do it right. Like Jesus, he's literally about to raise their brother from the dead. Like he knew that before he even left Beth, like before he even traveled there, he knew exactly what he was about to do. And yet Jesus weeps with the sisters. Why? That makes no sense unless you know that Jesus actually loves them. He cares about them. He values them. They're not just pawns in some peace at the end where you're like, oh, well, I got to prove this thing, and so like the end justifies the means, and everything's fine. 
Jesus loves those sisters. And their pain, it breaks his heart. Even though he knows he's about to fix all of it. It shows his great love for them. And if you are walking through something difficult, the good news of this passage is that Jesus in love for you is walking through it with you. He is not at a distance. He is deeply in it. And he weeps in the midst of the things that are hard. But he wants to offer you hope that he's overcome all of it in the end. And so there's this invitation there. But lastly for all of us, if the reality is that Jesus loves us most by showing himself to us, then the reality is that the way you and I respond to his love is by showing others who he is. If Jesus loves us by showing himself to us, what that means is one of the primary ways you get to love others is by showing him to them. You see, when we live with the kind of hope in the face of life and death, when you live with that kind of hope, and when you speak about the reason for your hope, you get to point people to the kind of faith that overcomes death now and forever. Ask him to help you see him for the first time as the resurrection and the life. Ask him to remind you of the hope you have in his resurrection promise. And ask him to empower you to live new resurrected lives today and every day. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for you. God, thank, thank you that you might cause John to write these things down for us so that we might see you as the resurrection and the life. God, we need you. We need you to show us your power so that we might see it and put our hope in you. God, would you fill us with a resurrection power that comes from your death on our behalf, that not only gives us hope to overcome death in the end, but that empowers us every day with your resurrection power in our lives. And so we, we need you for that. God, our friends and our family and our kids and our neighbors and our coworkers, they need to see your resurrection life in us. Might you fill us with it so that we might worship you through it and lead others to do the same, we pray. Amen.